This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Laden Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorj, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend, we are honored to welcome a principal leading voice from the business arena and an advocate for the rule of law and economic liberty, Gerard Gibbard. He is the host of Middays with Gerard Gibbard at Supertalk Mississippi. And prior to the broadcast arena, Gerard Gibbard founded Venture Technologies, a technology solutions provider headquartered in Ridgeland, Mississippi in 1986. He served as a company CEO from launch until its sale to Converge One, based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in January 2019. He serves on a variety of boards dedicated to growing Mississippi's economy. And that list includes the Madison County. County Economic Development Authority, Madison County Business League and Foundation, Innovate Mississippi, Empower Mississippi, and the Mississippi Lottery Corporation. And at International Leaders Summit, we are honored and pleased to relay that Gerard Gibbard has joined the Executive Advisory Board of the U.S.-based think tank. And without any further delay, welcome to America's Roundtable, Gerard. It's great to have you on this platform. Welcome, Gerard. Hey, Joel, Natasha, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a little unusual. I'm on the other side of the mic in, in this situation. So I've had the honor of uh, having you guys on my show uh, numerous times. Always enjoy the conversation and your insights. So thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you, you, Gerard. So much, yeah. And truly, we have really appreciated your leadership in bringing some of these key topics into the forefront. And as a business owner, you first delved into healthcare when then Senator Obama began promoting his plan. And you studied the volume of pages, and you recently brought these concerns with a case study on Mississippi. And we certainly look forward to the conversation and what is transpiring in Mississippi. And we encourage our listeners to read this timely piece titled, We Need Out-of-the-Box Thinking to Address Mississippi's Healthcare Woes, and that's on the Supertalk Mississippi website, which is supertalk.fm. And we truly believe that every state in the United States ought to be engaged in a robust discussion and debate on the healthcare issues facing us here in America. And prior to getting into the important details of this conversation, I would just like to share a few quick Uh, statistics that we've been able to gather uh, just to share a few highlights here. In Forbes magazine uh, earlier on in November 2023, a gentleman by the name of Shaquille Ahmed, who was a CEO for Atlas Surgical Group in St. Louis, stated that in 2021, the nation's healthcare expenditure reached a staggering $4.3 trillion, accounting for 18.3% of the GDP. And in 2021, Americans spent an estimated $300 
$378 billion just on prescription drugs. And the Kaiser Family Foundation found that the annual family premium for employer-sponsored insurance or health insurance plans surpassed $21,000 in 2020. And Gerard, from your in-depth research and findings, could you share with us your concerns about what is transpiring in Mississippi as a case study? And what should we be aware of regarding the uninsured in Mississippi and the cost it places on hospitals and the general marketplace? Yeah, so I appreciate that, Joel. So if if you go back and and look at one of the underlying goals of the Affordable Care Act, which was uh, signed into law, and in, uh, in 2009, it was to achieve the goal of what's called universal coverage, that everybody would have some sort of insurance to reimburse medical providers, hospitals, clinics, doctors, et cetera, for, for patient services, for healthcare. That was the idea. Um, that's, that's a noble idea, and that, it has merit. Um, and, and there was, a, it was kind of a complex approach to achieve that goal, um, the Supreme Court actually struck down uh, the uh, some of that, um, mainly requiring states to expand Medicaid. That was one of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act that would cover a certain segment of the population. Originally in the bill, it was going to be required that all 50 states would have to, actually it was in the law once it was passed, to, to expand Medicaid. That got challenged as part of the challenge that went to the Supreme Court on the individual mandate, where the government was requiring people to to buy something, that being health insurance, the Supreme Court uh, did uphold that. Many thought, well, the Supreme Court's gonna 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 repeal that or gonna rule against that, which would just torpedo the entire bill. That didn't happen. Supreme Court upheld it. But there was another aspect of that ruling that did kind of unravel a lot of this idea of and this goal to achieve universal coverage. And that was the Supreme Court said, you cannot require the states to add the coverage group known as Medicaid expansion. That's able-bodied adults with a, a, um, an income, a household income of less than 138% of the federal poverty level as a condition for participating in traditional Medicaid, which all 50 states do. You can't do that. Well, as a result, um, all states did not expand. And where we stand today on that is 40 have expanded, 10 have not. Mississippi is one of the states that has not. It is estimated that there's some 250 to 300,000 Mississippians that would qualify for Medicaid coverage should the state expand. There's a lot of reasons why Mississippi hasn't, but the fact is it hasn't. So I, I thought, okay, well, what can we do in lieu of this? Because the hospitals are still absorbing the cost of providing these patient health care services, even though the patients aren't paying for it. They don't have any insurance. They don't have any personal assets to pay for those services. The hospitals are just absorbing it. And so as a result, um, the hospital started calling attention to their, their financial challenges uh, with our legislature, with our state leaders. Uh, typically, it's the rural hospitals that are, are of most concern. They, they tend to, to be positioned in areas where they have the, the largest amount of uncompensated care. But after I started researching the financial statements on even our urban area hospitals, I learned they're not doing too well either. Some of them are actually uh, in the red. 
And then I started looking at it on a national basis and, and found that this is a, a phenomenon that's occurring across the country where hospitals are having a hard time just um, as making ends meet financially. And a lot of that's because of undercompensation and unreimbursed care. Um, and, that, and that just led to me, I guess, putting this article in place that says, well, maybe there's some other ways we could extend coverage and at least get some reimbursement uh, for these services that these providers are delivering where they're not getting paid. Right. Is this the reason, I mean, you, you mentioned in your article that 13 years since the Affordable Care Act enactment, also known as Obamacare, it's clear that President Obama's promise that the law would reduce average premium costs by $2,500 a year never materialized. You say, conversely, premiums have steadily risen since the ACA was passed. So, uh, Gerard, could you kindly share with us uh, why have the premiums continued to rise and how much was this increase? increase on average? Yeah, it's, it's significant. As Joel pointed out, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, which, which tracks uh, this sort of information and publishes it. And, and by the way, Joel, that is a source that I have had an interest in and, and have been following since I got, I guess, uh, in, involved in just tracking healthcare policy. It's excellent. They're kind of considered the foremost authority, uh, especially on insurance in particular, and just reimbursement to providers. Uh, yes, it has. It is steadily risen. It, it was really, um, I think, inappropriate for candidate Obama and President Obama to, to make that assertion. It really wasn't supported and rooted in fact. The theory was if we could achieve this universal coverage so that providers weren't having to absorb uncompensated care, that thus they could lower the cost of premiums. The idea was, of course, the mandate would uh, force the young, healthy population to, to uh, enroll in, in coverage and pay premiums, but really never use the services because they're just going to get sick that much. And that would kind of offset and that would sort of stabilize uh, premiums and actually bring the cost down. Well, none of that really happened. Um, my theory, honestly, Natasha, is that the reason it was it was uh, imprudent to even make that assertion is that the good news is humans continue to innovate and invent, if you will, more therapies, more drugs, more care, more procedures. All that's good. Improves the quality of life, extends life, cures disease. Problem is it all costs money. Right. And, and as long as we continue to invent more care, we're going to have this this financial aspect of it, dimension of it, that honestly, nobody's really prepared for, including the commercial insurers. You probably saw my, my discussion in the article about a, a brand new treatment for sickle cell anemia, which is, is incredible. I mean, it really is. And that, that's a problem in Mississippi, as you can imagine, because we have a large African-American population, which is most affected by sickle cell anemia. So we applaud this. We welcome this new treatment to cure this dastardly disease. I mean, I've seen people that have these attacks and so forth based on their sickle cell uh, disease. And it, I mean, it, you don't want to see anybody suffer like that. That's mm -hmm. great. Challenge is it's two and a half million dollars for, mm -hmm. for, uh, for the treatment. I think you're going to see more and more of these sorts of, of new, just, just groundbreaking therapies and treatments. The question is, how do we pay for that? And so I, I think it was uh, very short-sighted on the part 
uh, by Mr. Obama to suggest that, oh, yeah, we're going to bring premiums down $2,500. In fact, they've steadily risen. I can tell you, as a business person um, that, uh, of course, had group insurance that we provided to, to our employees, I can't remember a single time my insurance agent ever called me up and said, by the way, your premiums are going down this year. I can't remember my 33 years of operating a business. It was always the opposite, going up. Um, So uh, again, it's it's a difficult problem. And as you know from the article, I'm calling on not just government and lawmakers and those directly involved in healthcare, hospitals, providers, insurers, et cetera. I'm calling on the private sector and private individuals who, who all have a stake here. We all need uh, access to care. We need it to be affordable. Uh, we need uh, robust existence, if you will, of all that is available anywhere in our country. And in Mississippi, a very rural state, that can be a complex matter because we have so many people that, that live um, outside of the urban areas in our state that may not have ready access or even transportation. I've heard many stories about that where people just couldn't get the care they needed because they didn't have a way to get to where the care is being provided. So it, we, we got to think very creatively, I think, to address this issue. Uh, Gerard, uh, you appropriately say we need out-of-the-box thinking. And you say in your article, the overarching goal of the Obamacare was to achieve universal coverage. And we can go to Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland has a universal health care whereby it is compulsory for every person residing in Switzerland to get a private health insurance. Yes. So the state itself does not run the public health care program. And insurance companies are government-approved, non-profit, non-profit insurance providers. Yeah. So there is a market competition with over 60 government-authorized providers to choose from in a country of 8.7 million inhabitants. Yeah. So this system is highly regulated through the Swiss federal law on health insurance. It ensures that prices are fair and that all residents receive the same high-quality care. So in Switzerland, patients pay up to 8% of their personal income towards the cost of a basic insurance plan. If the premiums are more than 8% of the income, the government provides cash subsidy. And only about 11.8% of GDP is directed towards healthcare costs compared to the U.S. that spent, we spent some 17.8% of gross domestic product on healthcare, nearly twice as much as the average OECD country in 2021. So when you look at, the, and then beside this compulsory insurance, there's um, um, supplemented insurance by private companies, which are non nonprofit, but then you can choose some more preferred services. So what are your thoughts, you know, about replicating the Swiss-based model in Mississippi and in America. Yeah, so uh, one of the challenges we have in uh, the United States, as, as, as you know, and as I talk about in the article, is that insurance is essentially regulated at the state level. Uh, so we, ha- we have federal requirements. Uh, there's, there's the federal minimum, minimum essential coverage, for example, that all policies must include uh, that, again, is dictated by the federal government as a result of the Affordable Care Act. That's where that, that whole... A concept was born, but within the states, there are regulations that go beyond that. They don't conflict with that. They sort of supplement that. The problem we have, Natasha, is that every state has a different idea about what should be required in the way of insurance. 
And so when the idea or the, the suggestion comes up about we ought to be able to sell insurance across state lines, there's nothing preventing that now, essentially, an, an insurer can, can uh, establish a relationship with any state and register and be licensed to sell insurance in a state as long as they meet the state's provisions. I think the difference in Switzerland is, is like having one state where it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of one regulatory authority where in, Miss, in Mississippi, but no, in the country, we got 50 plus the federal government and that convolutes it. And so policies that could be sold in Mississippi, for example, would not be allowed in New Jersey, which in my research tends to be the most strict in, in terms of um, its, um, its insurance requirements for health insurance. It's also the most expensive. Last time I checked that it's considerably higher than the averages you cited, Joel, in the state of New Jersey. I think it's almost $30,000 now for family coverage, which is crazy when you think about it. But you know, something else you said, Natasha, was interesting that I wasn't aware of is, I think you said 8% of household income is kind of the limit the government. Well, that that actually is consistent with the Affordable Care Act uh, in terms of group coverage offered by employers to their employees in that, uh, I think I think the uh, the uh, latest figure is nine percent, and so the coverage they offer cannot be more than nine percent. Well, that's what actually got me involved in in this this whole world was that nine percent of what my employees pay, my employees and their spouses pay their household income plus any outside, and nobody can answer those questions. It's called the family glitch, by the way. It's it's like well. Is it is that threshold based on individual coverage or, or individual spouse or, or family coverage? You know, to this day, the IRS has still not codified that, hmm. still not been codified since the law was passed uh, 13, 14 years ago. Still has it. And it's exactly the question I asked my lawyer when I got involved in this, that same question that the IRS is yet to be codified, which tells me that well, I wasn't crazy to think that this is pretty complicated. I don't want to have to go run down my my employee spouse's income to determine if I'm in compliance with this requirement. And so I don't know how the Swiss government does it, but but you see the complexities there. And that's for employer coverage. Um, and then, uh, you know, you got a lot of employers, especially in the state of Mississippi, that are not required to offer coverage to their employees because they have fewer than 50 employees. And so their employees are on their own own. Well, when you're buying coverage in the individual market, that tends to be more expensive. You've got the exchanges, the ACA exchanges, which sell coverage. Problem there is, at least in Mississippi, the carriers that sell in the exchanges don't have robust provider networks. And so you find a lot of people that have that coverage, can't use it um, so that the, the provider would file on their behalf. They require them to pay when the services are rendered. Well, nobody wants coverage like that. A lot of people... It can't shake that. And so you can pay and then file and wait a couple of months to get reimbursed. What most people want to do is put that card on the desk there and they say, okay, we'll file it for you. And you may have a copay or a deductible or something, which is not going to be, of course, the the cost of the entire encounter. Um, but I, that's why I think we got to get creative. Um, in the state of Mississippi, we have a carrier, which is which is typical of most states, that has the mo- most robust network and 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 covers the most who have insurance. That's Blue Cross Blue Shield in Mississippi, except they don't sell their coverage in the exchanges. Mm. And so what you can buy in the exchange is, is from four other good carriers. They just don't have the extensive, robust network 
that the one who does has chosen not to sell in the exchanges. And, and that's the situation in, in a lot of states. But what you described, uh, Natasha, with respect to um, uh, Switzerland is that they don't have that problem. Everybody sells insurance, all sales through the, through the same tool, essentially. Whereas in the United States, every state's got their own set of carriers that signs up to sell coverage in exchange. And this is something else uh, that's related to this is most providers don't want to deal with a long list of carriers. It, it's it's difficult administratively and operationally just to deal with one or two. If you started if you started adding more to the mix, that gets expensive on their behalf, um, and they're not interested in that. Many of my physician friends say they see that as much as anything driving the U.S. the so-called single payer, and and I will I don't want to see that. And that's why I think we got to get creative in addressing this problem before we get to the point where we got no choice, which, by the way, is, is the Democrat goal and has been so-called Medicare for all single payer. That's been what they wanted uh, to do for quite some time. I think the fact that we have the 50 states and insurance regulated at the state level complicates this situation. Could we perhaps create some sort of reciprocation with other states? Yeah, I would welcome that. And I'd like to see our our, our lawmakers, our insurance commissioner, talk about that as an idea. Hmm. All right. And also, uh, Gerard, when we talk about health care, we also need to think and we think about how to reduce the cost overall and pharmaceuticals as well. Yeah. And bringing market competition and preventing patent abuse in the pharmaceutical market, which could also significantly lower the prices of pharmaceuticals. So in case of insulin as a treatment for diabetes, According to the American Diabetes Association, after adjusting for inflation, the direct medical cost of diabetes increased by 7% between 2017 and 2022, and national healthcare costs attributable to diabetes had increased by $80 billion in 10 years, from $227 billion in 2012 to $307 billion in 2022. So according to IBM Watson Health, the price of insulin in the United States jumped over 600 percent from 2001 to 2018. So while insulin was discovered 100 years ago, pharmaceutical companies were still charging patent-like prices by tweaking That's right. the formula. So U.S. closed pharmaceutical market, which prohibits imports, was protecting three companies which were providing insulin to patients, and the cost was borne by patients and taxpayers. So diabetic patients would travel to Canada or Mexico to buy cheaper insulin, which was done illegally. So and in your excellent piece, you brought up the recent decision made by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which has authorized the state of Florida to import drugs from Canada in a move designed to drive down the cost that Florida citizens pay for medicine. And you said that in addition to Florida, which submitted its application in 2020, numerous other states have also submitted similar requests to the FDA. So, you know, what are your thoughts about it? And is Mississippi also applying for import of drugs from Canada? Well, to answer your, your last question, uh, I hope those who read the piece and, and most of the legislature and state leaders have, I hope they uh, consider that, honestly. And that's why I put it in there. And by the way, it's interesting that that if you look at the timing of that, it occurred while I was writing the piece. 
Yeah, is, right. is, if you look at the dates on that in, in Florida, um, you're so right, Natasha. We um, this tweaking of these formulas uh, to just continue the patent has been a game that the pharmaceutical companies have, have been playing for quite some time. Uh, the Biden administration's approach is well, we're just going to implement price control. Well, that always backfires. I, I never see that as a good solution uh, to to address costs that are spiraling out of control, such as the case with insulin, which is is such um, a, a popular drug. Uh, so I think we need to really do an overhaul of our patent laws there. And I don't hear a lot of that coming out of our Congress. Rather, again, it's it's always force. You know, we got the Biden administration. We're just going to force them to to essentially charge this amount. Well, then they're going to get it somewhere else. Is all exactly. that's going to happen there. So that always, I think, results in the old unintended consequences. Um, I, so I think that's at play. I think we also have to think about cures for diabetes. And and uh, I know in some of the presentations I do, I typically use three hundred billion as the as the benchmark figure of the cost of just that. If we could figure out a way to permanently cure type one diabetes, I mean, it not only would improve healthcare outcomes for our citizens, but it would dramatically re- reduce the cost burden to society overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and may I, I've actually thought about this. Maybe rather than price controls and and importing from other countries, what about uh, call it a ransom, if you will, to the first person that comes up with a way to cure this problem? Maybe maybe they can come up with a way to clone a pancreas that that we could uh, transplant that would not be rejected by the human body and would not cost a lot of money that would fix the the problem of secreting insulin and consuming sugar. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I don't know. Money tends to motivate people. Last time I checked, but gosh, you know, there, there's no way you'd ever see the government say we're not going to pay somebody to come up with a solution to that. Well, why not? If you paid a dollar to get something worth ten, I'd say that's a good return on investment. But maybe that's the business person in me. But but I do believe that human innovation and, and uh, novel approaches to 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 curative um, technologies and therapies and drugs and procedures. That's got to be in the mix, like like this sickle cell um, uh, solution that's that's uh, just recently announced. What we don't know that I haven't seen any analysis of is, well, how much money, even though it's cost two and a half million dollars, how much money would it save in ongoing treatments throughout the life of that patient that doesn't have to deal uh, with that disease anymore? So that that's got to be factored in as well. Um, the, you know, I don't I don't want to dump too much on the pharmaceutical companies because, my gosh, the, the R&D and uh, the cures and the drugs that they have produced, as you know, most of which comes from the United States, nothing short of remarkable. It's when the government inserts themselves in that industry, they start looking for ways uh, around what the government is requiring of them so that they can be a, a viable company and achieve the profits that they need to keep the money flowing in from investors. So it's a, it's a catch-22, no doubt about it. And I'm not defending pharmaceutical companies. They're, they're dealing with that world. You know, the state of California is, I think, close to launching a, an effort to manufacture insulin within the state uh, through a project that would be owned by the state. Just, just government-produced insulin. 
Now, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of government competing with the private sector, but if the pharmaceuticals continue to kind of twist around and distort, manipulate these patent formulas, you know, maybe that's fair game in that case. Right. Mm-hmm. And on, on the point that you mentioned about pharmaceutical companies, um, Natasha and I, when visiting India, were really amazed to find out, uh, which is probably something that is really underreported and not talked about very much, there was one specific a pharmaceutical company that we visited in India that apparently is the laboratory or the research entity for U.S.-based companies doing their initial research. So on one side, you know, they're mentioning to us that they're doing this tremendous R&D so that there's a great investment involved. There's liability issues. So we understand that part of it. But it's interesting to know that Now these U.S.-based companies or European-based companies are using facilities in India to do their R&D, whereby the costs are much lower. So I think down the road, hopefully, this will also help us all out as individuals, whereby the cost of the R&D will go down significantly if they're able to do so in these countries such as India. And for the FDA to have more engagement to actually expeditiously provide the kinds of approvals that are needed for uh, some of these medications and prescription-related drugs too. So I think that may be something down the road that we can explore and perhaps at another discussion. But on another topic of the cost of healthcare, there is the other issue of healthcare and personnel. And according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, the United States faces a projected physician shortage of up to 124,000 physicians by the year 2034. So it's not too far away, with demand of physicians outpacing supply, and primarily due to the fact that the nation's demographics, particularly population growth and aging, serve as the primary driver of increasing demand for physician services. Now, we also know that there is this concern of students coming out of college with a debt of some $200,000 if they're in the healthcare arena. So that's an issue that legislators in Congress have been addressing. But whenever we see the government throw more money to you know, this particular field, we see the prices of college tuition also increasing. So have you had time to uh, research this part of it? And what would your thoughts be coming from the private sector of how we could provide incentives to a new generation to get into the field of the medical care community? Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, that's uh, actually a very timely question for the state of Mississippi. Our legislature last year, passed uh, a law which does provide uh, some um, defrayment, if you will, of education for certain healthcare professionals, including nurses and physicians. And we also have some incentives for them to practice in the areas where we need them the most. That's all done at the state level. Uh, But to your point, uh, Joel, yeah, that, that is an issue that is plaguing the entire nation, particularly, as you probably saw in the report, for primary care physicians. That's a, that is a, an acute concern, primary care physicians, um, in addition to, of course, uh, specialists. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, young folks just don't seem to have an interest in entering the field. It, it is a long, arduous journey, of course, to, to um, go to medical school, complete your residency, 
set up shop. And then as you indicate, you accumulate lots of debt along the way because it's a very expensive uh, undertaking. And, and so there's probably going to have to be a situation where there's going to have to be some financial assistance. And I don't think it could, can come strictly from government. I think this is another situation where we've got to get the private sector involved in, in um, addressing this issue and, and I guess, taking some responsibility for this issue. And if there's one thing that I hope resonates in the article more than anything, which is this is not a problem that you can just lay at the feet of, of lawmakers or the healthcare industry. This is a problem that affects all of us. The sort of shortage in the numbers you, you mentioned there, uh, um, Joel, that, that's going to be huge. It's going to affect all of us. That's, that's not going to be unique to, to just any population or any, any state or any area. That's going to be a big problem that has got to be addressed. I think we got to do a better job of attracting young people uh, into those disciplines but there may have to be some incentives uh, to get them in there. That's right. All right. And, and Gerard, also another way of reducing healthcare costs is prevention and prevention of obesity, of diabetes. And when we look at SNAP, which is formerly called Food Stamps, yep. which is a government program that helps people buy healthy food, uh, which we are paying for, uh, according to a 2019 brief at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, yep. uh, states such as Illinois, Minnesota, Florida, and Texas have either proposed bills in state legislatures or apply to the USDA to prohibit the purchase of certain food and drinks items using SNAP funds. None of those proposals have been successful. And according to Statista, in 2021, the total cost of the U.S. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is SNAP, was around $113 billion. According to the 2016 USDA study, 23% of purchases by SNAP households were sugary drinks, desserts, salty snacks, candy, and sugar, which is generally called junk food. Uh, Gerard, based on the fact that we are, as, as taxpayers, we are paying for SNAP, how can we influence that we are actually also involved in prevention of diabetes and obesity? It's a great question and uh, a, a very appropriate topic uh, for the state of Mississippi, where unfortunately we, we typically rank at the top of the list in diabetes and heart disease and, and obesity and so forth. Uh, we're also the poorest state. Uh, from a per capita income and household income perspective. So I think it's reasonable to link those two. Uh, when, when you've got poverty, you typically have poor health practices and health outcomes. And that's a double whammy because those are also generally people that don't have the means to pay for their health care, but they need more of it. So that, that's, um, that's kind of a toxic mixture there. Um, we have what are called so-called food deserts, as, as you're uh, familiar with, where in, especially in our most impoverished areas and in areas where we have the least healthy population, they often don't have access to fruits and vegetables and healthy food. It's also more expensive generally. So they, they, they tend to gravitate towards the, the uh, less expensive, unhealthy food, all of that which you listed. In some cases, they simply don't know. They're not aware. That, that this is a problem for them. I've actually heard doctors say that they've counseled patients on their diet 
um, and, and certainly as a way to improve their health. And the patients will respond to them. Well, you're still going to take care of me, right? And it's like, no, you're not getting this. This is <laughs> this is for your own your own personal well-being here. We're, we're trying to improve the quality of your life and the longevity of your life, um, and to prevent you from having to deal with with disease that, that typically comes down the road as a result of that. I I don't know why our government will not get more involved and take more action and be more strict on the use of taxpayer money in the SNAP program, as an example. I completely agree that we should. It's, it's, I guess it's somewhat akin to um, our, our inability to impose work requirements um, on, on some of the, the benefits, like Medicaid, for example. We just can't seem to get that over the finish line. Uh, typically, the objections, as you know, come from the left. They often see that as um, action that they would deem as racist, which really isn't correct. We're, we're trying to help people that are right. lower end of the income scale here to improve the quality of their life. Well, a little side note to that, served on the board of the, the local chapter of the American Heart Association uh, for a few years. And I, and I learned a lot uh, just about heart disease as, as part of that. It was an educational experience. And one of the things the Heart Association has determined is that literally a zip code, the health in a zip code can be uh, com completely different than in, in the zip code where uh, uh, perhaps incomes are a little higher and access to, to food, uh, higher quality food, healthier food is greater relative to an adjacent zip code where it's not. Incomes are lower and they, they have more food deserts that the occurrence of heart disease and especially death from heart disease is, is, is quite stark. The contrast just between adjacent zip codes. I think they did a study in the city of New Orleans, for example, which is kind of a densely populated city in the United States, which that shouldn't be, you know, we should be able to address um, that issue. So I agree with you. We need to work more on that. And that should start with some restrictions on the use of taxpayer benefits in the form of welfare here, something we have a big problem with in Mississippi that costs us all is um, infant mortality. And, uh, and and we have problems with prenatal care, which of course causes infant mortality or certainly complications and problematic pregnancies and deliveries. And typically that's, uh, so half the babies in the state of Mississippi are born to Medicaid. Medicaid. <clears throat> so when you think about government taxpayers, Paying for these compl complications, these problematic pregnancies, uh, not to mention that it's just not good for the mother and the child, right? So, I mean, they could be born with problems that sometimes are permanent. And if they're not, they cost a lot of money to, uh, to deal with. I've been to the neonatal intensive care unit here at University, University of Mississippi Medical Center. Wonderful people, wonderful that work in this department that are caring for um, these these babies that have just been born that just have a variety of issues. And when I asked the physicians how much of this was was avoidable, wow. uh, typically the response is the majority. <laughs> just, just with proper prenatal care and health habits. It's like, gosh, how can we fix that? You know, besides the cost of this, it, it's just the human suffering and, and cost associated with, with um, these poor health habits during pregnancy, just seems like we ought to be able to address that problem. I honestly think that that message needs to come 
and be delivered into those communities from people they respect. It can't just come from folks in the capital, for example, it's, it, or, 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 the, or those of us that um, just believe that because of our conservative viewpoints. It's got to come from people they respect, we, that they look up to. We should be engaging those people to help us with this issue, which would help these folks in these communities. We want to help them. We want them to be healthy. We want their babies to be born. Mm-hmm. And by doing all that, we also are, are reducing costs. Absolutely. And Gerard, we believe that we certainly should uh, continue this conversation and this important discussion on healthcare in America, and especially the cost and the impact that it has on families across our nation. This is election season, the presidential election. A number of the uh, seats in the House and the Senate will be up for decisions uh, in, in November. will determine who will lead our Congress. And so, therefore, it's important uh, for us not to just have this as a topic uh, or actually is part of that survey that they do, one of the key topics of concern. You see healthcare there, but it's, I think, important for the conservative movement and those on the center right to take even a more greater leadership in this topic of healthcare, which they have shied away from, and the other side has done a better job in, in weighing in and actually driving yeah. this process. So I think what you've done through your article is so important, and we encourage listeners uh, through the radio stations, but also through podcasts, to seek out. We need out-of-the-box thinking to address Mississippi's healthcare woes, which is certainly relevant for the entire country, for states around the country. And our special distinguished guest today is Gerard Gibbard. He's the host of Middays with Gerard Gibbard at Supertalk Mississippi. You can check out his program by going to supertalk.fm. Gerard, we thank you for your leadership on this very important topic. And thank you for taking time to joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Gerard. Really enjoyed it, Joel and Natasha. Good to see you guys. Uh, Really appreciate you having me on. Look forward to talking to you soon. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adensami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 